Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist Fund Managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. No end-of-season mood about this week's episode with the Premier League relegation battle hotting up, European places being clinched and Manchester City reaching a century of goals. We're still taking everything very seriously indeed. Today, is there still hope for West Bromwich Albion? What next for the unhappy marriage between Everton and Sam Allardyce and a redemption story Morgan Freeman would be proud of, starring Roy Hodgson in Croydon? We'll get the latest on the FA's unexpected decision to cash in on the London property market by selling Wembley Stadium and ask how much of that money will be used for good. Plus a trip to Scotland where you'll never guess who's won the Premiership title. Yes, it's Celtic. Just the seven in a row for them now. Roddy Forsyth talks us through their latest triumph. First, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by the world's greatest man. It is, of course, Jim White. Jim, how Hello, are you? Tom. Are you always that nice to people? I'm always that nice to you, Jim. It's oh, always a delight to welcome you uh, to, to the podcast. Um, we'll start at Old Trafford. Manchester United 2, Arsenal 1. Not a match to stir memories of the classic encounters between these teams in the Arsene Wenger era, but a familiar outcome. Yes, it was overtime at the end. Any match that's won by Maro and Fellaini, I think you're beginning to get an idea of where it stands in the pantheon of great football matches. Yeah, quite. It's uh, the sucker punch against Atletico earlier in the week, the defeat right at the end at Old Trafford. This is beginning to feel like a sort of greatest hits farewell tour for, for late era Wenger. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, Wenger's record. Yeah, Everyone was talking uh, over the last week about Wenger's fantastic clashes with Fergie and so on. But really, Wenger going to Old Trafford post about, well, I suppose Pizzagate in 2005. After that, it's just been one long tale of misery. And and you could tell that they no longer regarded him as a threat long ago, but by the lovely warm reaction that he got at Old Trafford today. This is the ground that used to seethe with hatred for Wenger, shouting some horrendous things from the uh, stands, now warmly applauding him, and then him getting a lovely little token of affection from, of all people, Sir Alex Ferguson before kickoff. Do you think he was taking the mick out of him a little bit? Did he, did he give Wenger a, a trophy? He did. 
Very good. I like it. Yes, he's negging him. It was a bit strange, wasn't it, that reaction at the beginning? I, I don't know how I feel about that. It, it was obviously a hashtag real nice classy touch. I'm not sure I like all of that. I want to see a bit more fury and anger in my football than that. Uh, that had gone a nice long time ago. It, when even Jose Mourinho, who actually uh, coined some of the, the most disparaging comments about Wenger, of why, uh, you know, a specialist in failure, when he's coming up and fawning all over him. You know something's gone horribly wrong with the world. Quite, yeah. A team of youngsters for Arsenal uh, wearing a bad blue away kit. I was getting uh, flashbacks of the 8-2 at the beginning of the game, but they actually acquitted themselves quite well, the, the young Arsenal team. Well, I think if you're an Arsenal fan and you're thinking, you know, the future uh, is there, there's quite a lot of talent there um, for any manager coming in. I mean, the problem is... Um, that there's a weakness of system, I would say, rather than a weakness of personnel. Why Wenger was so successful uh, was he had this idea of how to play and he had titans playing for him who used to make decisions on the pitch for him as a coach. When things began to fall apart was when he didn't have the players who could make that system work. And and tactically, uh, Arsenal have fallen behind... Uh, the other teams in the Premier League, there are some good young players coming through. And if someone can give them tactical guidance, actually, I think what it showed uh, today was there is a future there. What I was hoping for from this game, I suppose, was the the good side of meaningless end-of-season football. <laughs> a, a little bit of a more relaxed look to Manchester United, but it was still pretty joyless, wasn't it? Just humping up to Fellaini. I know it got a result in the end. Will the fans care very much or will they be going home from Old Trafford just delighted that they've got three points? I think there's a big split at Old Trafford. I think there are a, a lot of people who are anti-Mourinho, anti the football that he plays, anti the kind of pragmatism where it's only the result that counts. You know, these are people who've been brought up on the idea that football should be a moral stimulation. Uh, and you certainly don't get that from Mourinho. You can tell in social media the reaction whenever uh, there's a setback for Manchester United, the anti-Mourinho venom that is poured out on social media, how much it's just kind of waiting to, uh, to, to, to be aired. And at the moment, he's got the upper hand. Second place in the championship, in the FA Cup, wins the FA Cup final. It, it's hard to make uh, a, a, a coherent argument against him. But I still think there are a lot of people who are regular Manchester United fans who are unhappy with the style. Qualify for the Champions League as well, of course, with that victory against Arsenal. Uh, for Arsenal in Europe, conceded the unnecessary away goal to a 10-man Atletico Madrid. Do you give them any uh, hope in that tie? Now? Well, let's have a look at it. It's um, Let's just work this out. So Arsenal haven't won since the turn of the year. They've lost six away games in the Premier League. Uh, Atletico Madrid haven't conceded a goal at home. So, you know, let's let's think of where that's going. Atletico Madrid haven't conceded a goal at home since the turn of the year. Arsenal haven't won away since the turn of the year. 4-0 Arsenal. Got to give. 4-0 got Arsenal. To give. Exactly, the dam is going to break. Across Manchester, the champion City beat West Ham 4-1. Of course, not across Manchester at all. A game taking place in London. A very flat atmosphere at the London Stadium. A very flat performance from West Ham. Do you think there's any chance they're going down? There's a re- sense of resignation, I think, at West Ham. There's a kind of oh, a, a, a real a despair in the air. 
you look at the table and they're fortunate that there are teams worse off below them, but they're still in real peril. I mean, you know, if 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 the results this weekend continue till the end of the season, then West Ham could easily be sucked into the bottom three. Really impressive to see the intensity and the pace still there for City. I keep expecting them to have this surprising, can't really be bothered result uh, in one of these end of season fixtures. Has that already happened, do you think, with the Manchester derby? And now they're just full steam ahead, especially being out of the Champions League and they're just determined to end the season in uh, more frightening form than ever. Yeah, I think Guardiola has given them the challenge. He's given them the challenge uh, to get to 100 points. Uh, He's given them the challenge to get to 100 goals, which they passed uh, against West Ham. Um, And I think he's really said to them, you know, uh, go out there and prove that we are one of the great teams. There's... I think when you've achieved something, you then start looking at your legacy, don't you? And I think this City team have it within them to become one of the great teams in England, not just a championship winner. You know, so I, I, I think that that's what Guardiola is going for at the moment. And he's definitely not, not allowing them a moment to think they're on the beach. Do you think players are motivated by things like record points totals? It's an interesting question whether they're motivated by something more than money. But I get that sense with this City team. You only have to look at the way they celebrate goals, that there's a real togetherness of purpose and intent. And I think they're getting that from the manager. I think the manager is at them constantly. I understand that training is still very, very intense at, at, at City. There's still a lot of competitiveness in their, uh, in their build-up and their warm-up. So I think I think they are buying into what he wants, yeah. Yeah, piggy in the middle, by all accounts, absolutely brutal <laughs> at the Manchester City training ground. Down in South London, it was Crystal Palace 5, Leicester 0, a superb result, effectively clinching safety for Palace. Have you been surprised, Jim, by how successful Roy Hodgson has been? He's done two things, hasn't he? He's organised them and he's played players in the right position, uh, which seemed to be beyond uh, his predecessor, Frank. But, I mean, in, in that sense... What he has been able to do, which in comparison to the teams below them, uh, haven't the managers coming in there haven't had the time. I mean, he came in after seven games. Admittedly, he came in, might as well have been the start of the season because they didn't have any points. But he came in at, a chance, at, at an opportunity to really... Uh, affect change, and he's a very organised manager. He's got Wilfred Zahar as well. Of yeah, course. I mean that. Has, I mean that really. It, he he balks at when you say that to him. I've been at press conferences where people are saying, "Oh, thank goodness for Wilfred." Well, you know that's not very, that's not very nice on the other ten players. He doesn't like that, but it is actually a fact. He's got unlike any of the teams I would say uh, below them. You know, from twelve downwards, he's got a player that the top four would all cover. Yeah, he was out of this world, uh, but finishing a beautiful team goal to get Palace going on Saturday. Claude Puel, meanwhile at Leicester, seemingly off uh, the end of the season, does not seem popular among his own players. Would you want to play for Claude Puel, Jim? Very difficult to know what he wants because he can barely hear what he's mm-hmm. saying. Uh, always a problem. Yeah. Um, why did they, I mean, if he's not the man you want, why did you appoint him? This is what I don't quite follow. It, 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 you know, you know what you're getting. It's not like he's. He's pretending to be something else. They knew what they were getting. They knew they were getting a manager who had done all right at Southampton but hadn't pulled up any trees and had made them actually a rather boring team. They knew that's what they were getting. He wasn't going to be any different. 
And it's a little unfair on him, I think, to then turn around and say, oh, you're not producing exciting football. Well, what do you expect? You know, he's not Pep Guardiola, is he? Certainly isn't. Poor old Ben Hamer as well in goal for Leicester. A decent keeper. Looked great for Charlton a few years ago, but just hasn't had a sniff behind Kasper Schmeichel since joining Leicester. A thorough tonking at the hands of Palace for him this weekend. Is there any sadder job in football than backup keeper? Uh, no, I was um, I was listening to uh, uh, the radio talking about the Arsenal United um, uh, rivalry, and I can't even remember the game's the guy's name. Stuart something Taylor. Uh, yeah, who was the Arsenal backup keeper? He was talking about you know watching it, and he obviously had a ringside seat. Uh, through the Invincibles, because he never played a game. So what is, you know, and he probably didn't play either because he wouldn't have played for the reserves. He probably never actually played a competitive match because he had to be there at the at the um, first team matches, sitting on the bench. Probably got a lovely commemorative apparently Lehman, jersey. Apparently Lehman gave him a, a, a run out in a commemorative, in a, um, a game right at the end of the season, a kind of friendly. He allowed him to have a gaming and that was his one game behind the Invincibles. Very nice of Jens Lehmann. Up at Newcastle, they lost 1-0 to West Bromwich Albion at St. James's Park. Matt Phillips getting it done for West Brom. An amazing Ben Foster save keeping them in that game. Do you believe in West Brom? Is a miracle in the offing? It would be pretty hard, partly because the teams above them are playing each other. So someone's got to get points out of that. That's the problem they've got, is that if the teams above them were playing other teams who weren't involved then, yeah, there's a chance. But the points are going to be distributed amongst those above them. That's a real problem they've got. Chris Brunt afterwards basically just admitting Pardew was a disaster, saying we tried to be something that we're not. Darren Moore absolutely thriving. Would you give him the job, though? I, I think back to Craig Shakespeare at Leicester City, who benefited from the fact that Ranieri had clearly alienated that dressing room and got a sudden uptick in results. Can he maintain this sort of form, do you think? The most successful manager in English football history was a long-term assistant manager, which is Bob Paisley at Liverpool. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that West Bromwich Albion 2018 is the equivalent of Liverpool in 1977, but... Thank you for making that clear. (laughs) But you get, you know, you get the idea that somebody who understands the place can be very useful. Craig Shakespeare, you kind of think, well, he was 56 years old. Why hadn't he been a manager before somewhere else? You know, he was a consistent assistant. Uh, Where is he going to, why is he going to be useful as a, a, a as a number one? But Darren Moore's actually slightly different in that he's been a youth team coach. He's come through um, much more in the kind of, uh, let's be really praiseworthy, in the Pep Guardiola model. You know, Pep Guardiola was made, Barcelona manager, having been the youth team uh, coach. So it's a possibility. And the thing about Moore is he's absolutely got the crowd behind him. I was there uh, at at the Hawthorns for the game against um, Liverpool and they absolutely love him. Of course, he's then delivering as well. So he's produced a real feel-good factor around a club that has been in despair for about a year. Yeah, it's mostly been a feel-bad factor at the Hawthorns. Also down at the bottom, Southampton 2, Bournemouth 1. Such calmness from Dusan Tadic to keep his head to score that goal on the break and a lovely finish for the second as well. Is this the quality at Southampton we've been hearing about all season finally beginning to show itself? Yeah, when you say that, everyone's always going, oh no, they've got got really good players at Southampton. And I'm thinking, well... 
They can't win at home. They can't win away. Where are these good players? I mean, yeah, it was the first time I'd I'd really seen any hint of that. Um, is it too little, too late? Could be. Clappers in evidence Ooh. as well. As St. Mary's, are you pro or anti? Uh, anti a clapper. It's been, they've been there for a few games now. I know. Is They're it, trying to get them going like Leicester. Unacceptable. Swansea nil, Chelsea won in Wales. I have been saying for weeks that Swansea look vulnerable. They play Bournemouth, Southampton and Stoke. Does that put it in their hands or does it make them prime candidates to go down? They're much better at home than they are away. Until yesterday, they'd got, um, I think it was 15 points out of 18 at home in their last uh, six home league matches. So they've got two, they've got Southampton and Stoke both at home. The fans at uh, the Liberty are very much behind Carlos Carvajal. So there's a real kind of sense of unity there. They were very noisy yesterday and really supportive. And, and so I think they've probably got that chance. I mean, the, 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 the side that I really fear for uh, at the bottom is Huddersfield because they've got a terrible um, set of fixtures and everyone else below them, as I've said, are playing each other. So they're going to get points. Someone's going to get points. And I just really feel Huddersfield might actually accelerate past Swansea. Of course, both of them could end up. But I think Swansea have the fortunate uh, thing that they've got um, a game in hand over the two below them. They've also got those two games at home. Huddersfield, ooh, I can't see them getting a point. Certainly pointless at the weekend. Lost 2-0 at home to Everton. Sam Allardyce seemingly staying for another year at Everton. Whoa! Yeah, it's Get happening. Get out there. Oh. It's happening. Get the bunting out. <laughs> is it time for Everton fans just to suck it up a little bit and accept that this is it for, you know, not necessarily forever, but another year? Six in the Premier League since he took over. It's not a bad stat. Not a bad record. <laughs> well, You're as not you can convinced. see, I'm not convinced at all. I mean, they, they, they unfurled a banner saying, you know, we've had, we've had a vote. <laughs> we've had a vote, Sam. Our survey not says, been, wasn't it? Not been made public. Interestingly, I wonder why that is. I think, yes, a, a manager can keep going and deliver things. Um, if you think of Rafael Benitez at Chelsea, the fans absolutely against him from the moment he was appointed. He won a trophy. He wasn't there that long, but he won a trophy. You know, uh, but I think once the fans turn against you, uh, you know, Tony Pulis at West Bromwich Albion, a very good example. You know, everybody on the outside was saying, what are they complaining about? What's the problem? You know, what's the, what's the issue? What will happen, what will really, I think, uh, begin to concentrate minds in, in the boardroom is when the seats begin to get a bit empty. And I think there's a real likelihood at Everton next season that if Allardyce stays on, the fans are going to vote with their feet. Yeah, we were talking about this with Paul Hayward on the podcast last week. There's precedent now for that working, isn't there? It's, it's spooked Arsenal. So you can it's see It's definitely other fans spooked doing that. Arsenal. It definitely spooked uh, West Bromwich Albion. Because, um, you know, why would you get rid of Tony Pulis? He'll keep you in the division. Absolutely. And he'll look very, very good in the baseball cap while doing so. Why do fans dislike Sam Allardyce so much? It was a very similar situation at West Ham. But to me, he's, he's one of the best English managers we've had for the last 20 years or so. I think at Everton, they have a kind of sense of what the club should be about. Uh, in a very similar way. A club way. who employed David Moyes for 15 years or so, often not playing particularly exciting football. Yeah, good point. But they still had a sense of what they should be about. And I think they feel that Allardyce is anti all of that. 
And when you look at the players he's got and the the standard of of, of play that he makes them play, that I think uh, shows that he's at odds with the kind of traditions of Everton. Liverpool nil, Stoke nil. Astonishingly, no goal for Mo Salah. Very odd miss from him. Uh, the crowd seemed to celebrate it on autopilot. Did you notice that? Yes, they a, were. That's they're right, kind of that's up right. and going. They, they, they uh, astonished that it didn't actually... No, hang on. Why aren't they going back to the centre circle? <laughs> Uh, Salah has actually now missed 21 clear goal scoring opportunities in the league according to our friends at Opta that's more than any other player in the league so I mean clearly he's he's been playing selfishly with fantastic results but do you think he can keep it up next year? Second season syndrome you mean I mean there, there, there is that but I think depends who he's got alongside him I mean Firmino's just signed a contract which I think is a, a, a hugely important thing I mean, you think about the the goals that Salah gets, Firmino is really important, both in distracting the opposition and in these very clever little passes that he gives. Is Firmino going to be there? Yes, there's a good chance. Mane as well, you would expect to kick on even more next season as well. Did you see the uh, the alleged punch from Salah on uh, Bruno Martins Indy? Some very upset people. On Sorry, that. I'm, I'm going to go all Arsene Wenger. I never saw it. No, no. Well, it's it's been uh, it's been. Uh, very keenly discussed on some corners of the internet. He did seem to sort of lash out at him a bit. Is this the side of? Is this what we're going to see from Salah when he can't Ooh, score a, a goal? Little, a little bit of a little bit of spite and venom. I mean, he always looks so kind of jolly, doesn't he? He looks like a kind of nice young man. Bit of literal fight from Salah. In more exciting goalless draw news, it was Burnley nil, Brighton nil. But it's Burnley in Europe, Jim. Astonishing stuff at Turf Moor. What do they need to do over the summer to make sure it doesn't do them more harm than good? Well, they need to strengthen the squad because one of the things about being in the Europa League is it requires depth in your squad. Sean Dyche is a manager who likes to have a first team type that he picks the same game after game after game. You can't do that if you're playing in Europe because you just exhaust your team and also prone to injuries and so on. I think there's a they've got to really strengthen. And actually, this is not um, any Burnley fans listening to this. Switch off now, Alistair Campbell. Stamp on your <laughs> on your radio. Do not listen to what I'm about to say. If Sean Dyche really wanted to make sure that his career maintained its upward trajectory, get out now, Sean. Controversial, Jim. Uh, finally, who's going down? I'm afraid uh, West Bromwich Albion are going down. I, I'd love to see the great escape. God, it'd be brilliant. And really like Darren Moore. He's so modest, uh, so self-effacing, and, and, and the players clearly love him. I think he has a future. Unfortunately, it's a future as a championship manager uh, in, in the near future. They're going down. I have a feeling Stoke are going down. And I think Huddersfield are going down. So I think Southampton are going to escape. Swansea, goodness knows how, uh, are going to escape. And West Ham are snoozing their way into danger and will probably wake up still a Premier League team. Just looking forward, Jim, to Monday night. It's Tottenham versus Watford at uh, Wembley, owner TBC. Uh, Where do you stand on this new, slightly unconvincing reading of Harry Kane as some sort of selfish villain because he wants to claim other people's goals? And of course, when we even even it even to discuss it, of course, we're risking undermining his morale at uh, the World Cup. You know, he's a sensitive flower. We've heard that from Pochettino. It, it, there's been some 
mean things said about him. And, you know, I think we ought to stop it here and now. I know that Harry Kane is a podcast fan and I know that he knows that I love him very much. We all love him. Stadium could soon be in the hands of a man with an extravagant moustache after Shad Khan's generous offer to buy it from the Football Association. Our football correspondent Jason Burt is with us now. Jason, what stage are we at in any potential sale and when is it likely to be resolved one way or the other? Well, it depends who you, who you, who you talk to on that. I mean, Mr Khan himself said that he thinks the sale will be complete in eight to 12 weeks, which caused some consternation at the FA when I mentioned that to them. What's interesting is also they're saying they haven't got a exclusivity agreement with Mr. Khan. So there is a possibility uh, of somebody else making a counter bid. In saying all of that, I, th- I think it will go through. I mean, when the, when the story broke, it got quite a lot of information very quickly. So it shows talk has taken place over a, you know, a number of months and, and possibly even years. But I think, I think we will expect it to happen. I think Mr. Khan is saying the start of next season. And, and I think that is possibly realistic. Although I think, you know, FA are saying maybe a little bit longer than that. What are the pros and cons of the FA selling Wembley? When you look at the deal, you think it's almost too good to be true. So straight away, you sort of your natural cynicism kicks in and think, what's, what's, what's the downside? And obviously, the immediate downside is what, what you really feel about Wembley. And I think that you know, there is that argument that obviously some people put forward that it's the home of football in England and the FA should own their own home and, and we're sort of like selling off the crown jewels, as it were. But then the counter-argument that, which, which I believe, is well, you know, England didn't, the FA didn't own Wembley before anyway. They've only owned it for a fraction of the, the time that a stadium has been at, at Wembley. And actually, when England won the World Cup in 1966, they didn't own Wembley then. So I think the idea of like investing this money in, 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 in facilities around the country, in grassroots football, in coaching and people, for me, means more than just bricks and mortar of a stadium, which is a little bit unloved anyway. I mean, I don't think the new Wembley has really captured the imagination. I don't think it's a stadium that people really look on fondly. I think they think the idea of Wembley is a good idea, but they don't look at the stadium and think, this is an amazing place to go. It's a great experience. We love going there. I don't think anyone has those feelings about Wembley. But there is that kind of you know, argument, as I say, that some people think they're either they're selling it off too cheaply or that England needs to have their own home. And again, I don't really agree with that argument. Is there any reluctance with the FA because of the symbolic value of selling Wembley? Is anyone there concerned about how it looks to be selling Wembley? All I can say is that the people who've criticised it so far, largely, uh, didn't do a particularly good job themselves when they were at the FA or the Premier League. People like Dave Richards and, I mean, well, you could argue around Ken Bates and so on. But some of the people have come out and criticised the idea, I think, actually endorses the idea in my mind, because they weren't brilliant custodians at times themselves around around football in, the, in, in this country. Um, but, I, but I think there is a concern at the FA Council as to what, what it means. And the mechanism is quite interesting because the FA board can actually approve the sale of Wembley without the endorsement of the council, but the council can have a vote of no confidence in the board. So you don't really want that to happen. So they can sell it without agreement from the council, but obviously they'll want the council to agree uh, for the sale to go ahead. How much of any of the profits would go towards grassroots? What was interesting on Friday was that Greg Clark, who's the FA chairman, released a letter which he's written to all the councillors in which he states very, very clearly that the cash, the £600 million guaranteed cash, will go into a trust fund. That fund will be ring-fenced and that fund will be devoted to grassroots football. So I think they're making it very clear that they 
that that money is going to be almost untouched for other areas. You don't want it to go on the running costs of the FA. You don't want it to be diverted into salaries for people. You don't want it to divert into other areas. If they're making this very clear commitment on grassroots football and on improving the game at every level in terms of around the country, then they want to make sure that money is ring-fenced. And they're very, very clear in that. So I think that's quite an important sort of caveat. But the, the problem is we still don't quite know how it's going to work. You know, you've got this big, huge pot of money. Um, how is it specifically going to be distributed? We're talking about 1,500 3G, 4G pitches and lots of other facilities. But I think what there'll be is there'll be a widespread program of investment and that people will be asked to bid for projects in the same way they do for lottery funds. And that, that money will be available, be made available by the FA. Is that going to go a long way to fixing the problems with the football culture in this country, especially among grassroots? I think it will. I mean, I've, I've long advocated um, we need to improve the grassroots facility. And that means literally, you know, building pitches. You go to uh, Holland, you go to Germany, you go around Europe, and every village and every town has far superior sporting facilities than anywhere in England. And it's a real passion of mine that, you know, we don't invest enough in these infrastructures for every level of, of the game and not just in football but all sports really people should be able to use facilities that are good enough you know for kids to play on for adults to play on and for people to enjoy the sport at every level and then to be encouraged to play that sport and too many times in this country in particular kids football is called off because the facilities aren't good enough and they, they're not able to play and train properly and i think it is an issue there's a societal benefit as well because you're talking about people being more healthy. You're talking about there being a more social aspect of it. I think it's a really important thing. You could argue it's something that government should do more about, but the FA, to their credit, is taking initiative with this money. And finally, Jason, do we think there's any chance whatsoever that a sale of Wembley might result in a slightly better deal for fans, less extravagant ticket prices for cup finals, for example? I think that's important as well because I think what needs to happen is that not just guarantees given by Shad Khan and by the FA that the football matches will continue to take place at Wembley, but also that the tickets will be fixed or there will be a discussion over pricing because you don't want a situation whereby the owner of Wembley is jacking up the tight ticket prices for profit, you know, and the FA may well be holding the events at that venue, but the, the, the prices are getting out of control because, as you say, you know, the FA Cup final is a big hoo-ha over the cost of tickets for the FA Cup final. And I think everyone thinks, you know, that a lot of these facilities and a lot of the games are taking place at Wembley that the FA have organised. Part of the reason why they've charged so much is to help make pay for Wembley. So we don't want that situation where a private operator is doing exactly the same thing at Wembley. We want to make sure that the tickets are affordable for everyone. A topic we'll watch with interest. Thanks very much, Jason. No problem. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Celtic are the unsurprising winners of this season's Scottish Premiership after a 5-0 victory against Rangers at Celtic Park, securing their seventh title in a row. Our man in Scotland, Roddy Forsyth, joins us now to reflect. Roddy, what has impressed you most about how Brendan Rodgers has managed Celtic since arriving? He's a driven character and that is reflected in the high intensity, high tempo play of the side. Play which reflects their training regime too. He is on each player's case. I can think of a particular player he said to, who remarked to him, well, I've got 10 years left in the game. And Brendan said, OK, it's 120 monthly pay packets. That won't last you all that long. Think of your family. Think of your long term future. So we know what kind of guy he is. He's a motivator. 
He has uh, a definite psychology in the way he treats people. He is uh, relentless and restless. Um, he has a regard for his own position. He has a regard for his players' position and his coaching staff's position. He also likes to take account of the support. We know that from Anfield. We know that from Celtic Park. He addresses them directly. So he's a very hands-on manager. He's a manager who likes to have a say in more areas than one. For example, talking about the kind of pitch he wanted Celtic to play on and the kind of agreement he got from the groundsman uh, at Celtic Park. That's the kind of attention to detail, which allied to Celtic's superior resources over the last five years. They've been in the Champions League group stages. Rangers haven't. Rangers have had a financial implosion. It just means that the team with more resources uh, with greater uh, reliability over the past few years, is being driven by somebody who is actually, at the moment, pretty well ideal for them. Obviously, pretty brutal defeat for Rangers, massively off the pace. Is it harder for Celtic to hit the heights they have hit without a proper title challenger? Let's remember that they're about, in all likelihood, to win a second consecutive treble. If that was easy to do, it would have been done before. Um, trebles have been won in Scotland before, but they're few and far between. So Celtic have set a standard. Um, and they've lived up to it this year. Last year, they won it without um, being defeated. Where Rangers have a real problem and where Steven Gerrard will have a problem if he comes in is, have a look at what happened in the Scottish Premiership this season. Celtic weren't invulnerable. Their British record uh, of unbeaten successive domestic games came to an end, not in some scrappy defeat, but a 4-0 beating by Hearts at Tynecastle. They've been beaten by Kilmarnock. Last Saturday, they were beaten by Hibs, who matched them up all over the field, took a chance on Celtic's superior technique, but got away with the gamble because they had attitude. Rangers have not been able to do that. That's the biggest indictment of their players. But, Roddy, given the scale of the gap between the two clubs, how on earth uh, does Gerard, if he comes in as manager, even begin to address that? Well, it's guerrilla fighting. He has to win a trophy. Now, that can be done. You, uh, for either of the two knockout competitions, a degree of luck can work in your favour. As we always have tended to say in football, uh, lucky teams win the Cups and the most consistent team, the best team, wins the league. So it would be very difficult to stop Celtic winning the league uh, next year. Perhaps it will be very difficult to stop them winning three. But it has to be, and that would take them incidentally to the magical unsurpassed ten in a row. But uh, it's not beyond the bounds of a manager with diligence, uh, players who will play for him and a refreshing uh, element of players uh, during the summer to be able to deprive Celtic of another progress to a treble. That at least would be a start. It would be a statement of intent. That's what the next manager needs to do. At the moment, Stephen Gerrard has that um, managership in his gift. It's up to him. If he wants to take it, Rangers will take him. John Barnes went to Celtic at a fairly similar point in his career. It didn't end too well for him or for Celtic. How well qualified do you think Gerard is for this job? I think no matter what qualifications you have in coaching youths or coaching down the leagues, when you come to the old firm, it's a virtually unsurpassable experience that you're going to be in for. So it helps if you've been bloodied. Um, now, when John Barnes was appointed, Kenny Dalglish was his mentor and supervisor at Celtic Park. And I said to Kenny Dalglish on the day that John Barnes was introduced to the media, don't you think that you're taking a very sizable risk? And Kenny, in his uh, fairly typical style, said, well, you take a risk every time you cross the street. And I said, well, I look light, right and left. Have you been able to do that with John Barnes? He then switched to belt and braces and saying, I'm here. And that argument collapsed when Inverness, Caledonian Thistle, who were at that time a lower league team, arrived at Celtic Park and inflicted the cup defeat that led to the famous headline, Super Cali Go Ballistic Celtic are atrocious. 
Um, and that really scarred Celtic at the time, and it was the end for John Barnes. So what has to happen uh, with the next manager of Rangers, no matter who it is, but if it's Steven Gerrard, he has to avoid that kind of humiliation because that puts an end to you in Glasgow. Are they hoping with the appointment of Gerrard to make a statement of ambition? Is that the idea? Because, you know, as Tom said, in terms of his experience, it seems an unlikely appointment. You get the impression, uh, if you have a look at the appointments of Matt Warburton and Pedro Cachinha, Matt Warburton got Rangers when they were in the lower leagues and his brief was to get promotion. But it was also he was also sought after because it was felt he would have access to a certain kind of player, championship material in England that could translate to getting Rangers up. He was allowed a certain amount of latitude which he employed to bring Joey Barton to the city. That was calamitous. It just didn't work on any level. Pedro Cachinha, in turn, was um, sought because it was felt he would have access to the Latin markets in a way that Celtic had um, done profitably through places like Honduras and other South American countries. And, and the upshot was that the pay level was broken to bring in Carlos Pena and Bruno Alves, neither of whom have been raging hits. Well, Pena, of course, has gone off on loan and Alves just hasn't been playing. So as I understand it, in any case, um, Steven Gerrard has been told, look, if you come and you make a case for a player, we will find the resources to get him for you. But it's a piecemeal way of looking at things. And I suspect also the appointment of Mark Allen, who was at the Manchester City Academy, and uh, the recruitment, if it comes to this, of Steven Gerrard, there would be hopes that they know enough about emerging talent south of the border, whether it's English talent or other talent at academies that's maybe not going to break into the highest level that they can be persuaded to come north of the border. The Liverpool connection has worked very well in Glasgow up till now. Just look at Brendan Rodgers, cast your mind back to Graham Souness. But in both cases, they were backed by money. Their club was the dominant club and they simply took the club onto another level. Finally, Robbie, Aberdeen this time last season looked like the emerging power in Scottish football. It's been a bit of a disappointing campaign for them. Where do they go from here? And are they going to hang on to Derek McInnes? Well, first of all, Derek McInnes chose to stay with them, as you know, perhaps shrewdly now when you consider where Rangers are and uh, the difficulties they've encountered. They're building a new stadium outside of town. They've got, well, they're not building it, but after uh, a long campaign which was um, balanced by a campaign against it by local residents in, in the area outside Aberdeen who just don't want the stadium. Uh, planning permission has been granted. This will also give Aberdeen something that a team of that a club of that caliber doesn't have its own training ground. They've got a, a training ground opposite the stadium, which is doubles up as a car park. And they also have other facilities that they use, but they don't have a Melwood or anything like that. Um, they don't have what Rangers and Celtic have. Now, that may not necessarily be a problem if you have the highest talent that was brought up in the streets of South America or even the back streets of Glasgow. But in the current environment of football, where so much is run through computers and data processing and people are watched and monitored very carefully for everything from their blood sugar to their diet to their muscle tone, having to go and bounce about on a public pitch just doesn't work. They're making the step to a, a new stadium that will be a revenue earner instead of a revenue drainer, which Pataudry is. So I, I can see that they've got a strategy and a plan for the longer term. But the difference in resources between them and Celtic and Rangers will always tend to mean that there's a gap unless you come up with what they once came up with and Alex Ferguson. So there's a bit more of a title race to discuss next season. Thanks for joining us, Roddy. That's a pleasure.
Time for your Hero of the Week, and we rise as one podcast entity to salute Norwich City's Wes Houlihan, whose contract is not being renewed after 10 years with the club. It was his final game on Saturday, and he scored one and set up another in Norwich's 2-1 win against Leeds before being taken off as a substitute to a tearful standing ovation at Carrow Road. His manager, Daniel Falk, said, If I had to paint a picture of how Wes's career for Norwich would finish, that would have been it. Jim, when have you been saddest about a player leaving? Without doubt, and I'm sorry this is, you know, delving back into the past and a fairly obvious one, but it was Eric Cantona leaving Manchester United. A bit like my suggestion about Sean Dyche, he left when we assumed he was at his peak, but he had just beginning to see intonations of mortality and went. So it came as a, a, as a real surprise, a real shock. And the fact he was just giving up the game as well underlined what an amazing change it was. And, uh, you know, we knew we weren't going to see his like again. And let's be honest, Slatan Ibrahimovic was not his like. <laughs> Cemented his legacy there, didn't he? Picking your time of leaving, as we've seen with Arsene Wenger, uh, is a really important thing. You know, if Arsene Wenger had left after uh, Arsenal had beaten Hull in the Cup four seasons ago, would we have had quite the kind of um, suggestions that he wasn't as great as he, he might have been that we've had because of what happened in the succeeding four years? Um, I think picking your time of going is, is is a really hard thing to do. And it sounds as though Wes got it absolutely right. Yes, a wonderful Good player, man. actually. Good player. I really like Wes, who yeah. ran as a footballer. Superb servant for Norwich City. Up there with Delia. Very well done indeed. You have finished this week's episode of Total Football. If you would like to contact me before our next meeting, head to twitter.com. I'm at Tom with an H Gibbs. If you fail to subscribe to the podcast yet, I am both angry and disappointed. Look for Telegraph Total Football on Apple Podcasts or your preferred supplier for a new episode with you every week in time for your Monday morning commute. Our theme tune is by the excellent band Polvo. Head to MergeRecords.com to get their back catalogue. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers. If you're enjoying being part of the Telegraph Sport podcasting family, then do make sure to download and listen to Brian Moore's Full Contact. It's the most opinionated rugby podcast as every week, Brian and a host of big names from the world of oval balls analyse the biggest and most controversial moments from the weekend's rugby. Your Tuesday commutes will never be the same again, if you like rugby.